Welcome. This is Engaging Process, a podcast video series where art education and art making meet. I'm art education professor, Dr. Cam McComb. My pronouns are she, her. In this series, I talk one-on-one with professional artists to gain insight into the thinking, planning, experimentation, and research that becomes part of the artistic process. In this episode, I am absolutely delighted to be speaking with artist Amy Saxtetter. Amy, welcome to Engaging Process. Thank you, Cam. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so um, just to kind of start off, like, what pronouns do you use? Oh, mine are she, her. I'm really okay with anything you want to call me, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind yeah. for a later date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going to start off. I like to start off with the easiest questions first. Mm. Um, I just want to know, uh, why do you make art? I've always made art. Um, it helps me to, well, it basically helps me give my life meaning. Um, so what do you mean by that? Well, uh, growing up, I feel like certain aspects of my life were a bit fraught. Um, and so I feel like I always turn to art as a way to, um, find solace, but also to express myself, to be with myself. I'm an extroverted introvert. So when I need to return back to myself or recover from, um, a lot of socializing, um, one of the places I go, uh, there are multiple, but, and they all feed my work, but one of the places I go is back to the studio and a studio for me is any setting where I'm with myself and my work. Hmm. An extrovert and, and an introvert. So yeah. do, do you ever make art as an extrovert or is it only in retreat? Well, uh, I, I have collaborated with folks um, for sure on on art making. Whenever I do some kind of um, group exhibition, I feel like that's a collaborative um, effort. But that's different than the, the quiet space that I move into when I'm making work as a solo artist in my studio. Yeah. For example, I have a ceramics practice that is currently situated in a community ceramics studio. And that's a lot of um, engagement with folks in the community. Right. Um, and it's actually challenging for me to toggle back and forth between the mental space I need to be in to think about my work and um, and sort of socializing, for lack of a better word. But I feel like that kind of socializing is really important. That's cer- certain media like ceramics um, do lend themselves to a communal atmosphere, and I do want to be part of that. So I have I'm very much of two minds. I'm both of my parents' um, child, so my dad's very introverted. My mom is pretty extroverted, um, and so I really see both sides of their personalities coming out in me, which can be confusing. And also, uh, I'm hoping I, I'm able to deal with it at this point right. in my life. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And you have art to help you. Do no that. kidding. So you said you've always made art, okay? Yeah. So like, but at what point did you think, hey, I could make a living doing this? Not until college. I entered college at the University of Dayton in Ohio as uh, an undeclared major, but I knew I had my sort of three passions coming out of high school. Uh, I knew I liked to read and was good at writing, and I wanted to pursue those. Um, I loved art, and I was 
interested in French. I was a bit of a Francophile, though I don't know if I had much talent for speaking the language. Um, so I ended up majoring in English, actually, and minoring in art and French. In college. Yeah. And so uh, it was after a study abroad trip to France, my the summer between my junior and senior year, where I got to paint in the French countryside. Oh, wow. It was very beautiful and bucolic. Um, and I came home and a switch flipped and I became very serious about painting. Some mentors were very instrumental in helping to kind of guide my path. And I decided that year to apply for grad school. So I sort of reoriented myself to that very um, like specific path, whereas before I had been more kind of open yeah. um, to what the future would bring. So it sounds like that door to grad school was also you entering your mind space of exactly. saying, this is my professional journey and it begins now. Exactly. Because <clears throat> it helped to break up with a boyfriend at the time. <laughs> um, so so I was able to kind of reground myself with myself, um, stay up all hours at the painting studio, which I had the energy for in my um, very early 20s. Um, so I would work late into the night. I would work all the time. I did have jobs that I had to work for money, so I had a couple of those on campus, and I waited tables. But all my free time around all the papers I was writing and all the reading I had to do for my other classes was spent painting and prepping for grad school. Okay. Yeah. So were your parents supportive of you becoming an artist? They were. I'm really lucky because my dad's a surgeon and my mom is a nurse. Oh, Wow. I know. So there are these medical people. And I think that in it's funny to, you know, when I'm talking to the average person about um, my own journey and, and my parents, my brother's a writer. And so we both I have these medical parents who ended up with these arty kids. Right. Right. <laughs> and I think people would think, oh, that's a huge jump from the medical sciences to these creative fields. And I actually see a lot of creativity in what they do sure. um, to be a, an effective professional in any field, but certainly in medicine and to work with people, you have to come up with creative solutions. So I don't see a huge leap between what they do and what we do. Um, I We were just supported so that we felt like we could go into these fields um, it was like a leap of faith to go into the arts. Uh, it's good to have something to fall back on. Like I knew when I went into grad school that I would probably be teaching, um, that that would be my goal because the MFA is the terminal degree. It's what you do instead of certification, basically, right. to teach at the college level. Right. So um, and my brother did the same. Like he got a PhD in creative writing eventually, and now he's a professor yeah. as well. Well, yeah. The sciences are all about exploration. No so kidding. It's nice that you had that connection. Yeah. I often equate those in my studio classrooms, um, talking about the scientific method and the um, method of inquiry that artists have in our studios, which could be equated to labs. Well, Robert Rauschenberg talked mm -hmm. about that, and he said the key difference between the scientist and the artist is how they document their findings. Yeah. And I thought that always stuck with me. No kidding. I thought, yeah, that's great. Um, and so I want to talk about your art making process because I think um, people can learn, right, uh, as I train art teachers mm -hmm. and we want them to be able to work with children and teens to think about how it is that artists think, right? Like, well, how do artists think? Yeah. You know? So I thought, well, let's start talking to yeah, artists yeah. and see how they it's think, how they work and um, be able to use that as a resource for my students and then hopefully the broader community mm -hmm. of, uh, of teachers. Um, before we talk about your process, though, you know, 
how do you identify yourself? I introduced you as an artist, mm-hmm. and we know that you got a BFA in paint, uh, MFA in painting. Correct. Okay, but how do you identify? Like when someone says you're an artist, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like what labels would you attach to yourself? Um, that's interesting because I think when you say labels, I go immediately to the keywords I would put in in hashtags or when I'm like doing something for a website. How do people find my work, right? Sure. So um, some of the things definitely I feel like all of my work comes out of a place of painting. I'm trained as a painter, um, both in undergrad because that's what I concentrated on in my minor was very uh, deep investigation of painting, the work I was doing, and then moving from there into um, being a painter in grad school. So I've always made paintings as a serious artist, but I've also never limited the concept of paintings to, um, a brush on a canvas. So, uh, I'm, uh, I was influenced by Jennifer Bartlett in grad school who would make paintings, but sometimes they would look like a hundred tiles installed in a grid on the wall, Hmm. or she would have an object or a sculpture, um, sitting on the floor or a series of them in front of a large-scale painting, basically extending the field of the painting into the viewer's space. And there are many artists who have done and are doing this. For example, a lot of painters um, right now are really interested in the the frame as a motif and how it extends the, the conversation of the painting out into the periphery of space and the painting becomes more sculptural by attention to the frame. Yeah. Um, so they'll make it out of ceramics or they'll paint it or it the the painting will grow out onto the frame. So I do a lot of So you weren't limited work. by the idea of paint on a canvas and then Exactly. But I also see you doing work that I might call collage. Yeah. And yet it's blowing my mind because I can't see it related to traditional ideas of collage, but yet mm-hmm. it seems to be collage. Would, do you embrace that title or? Sure, yeah. So other hashtags I would use, for example, are collage. Um, I do work with cut paper. Yeah. Uh, now I make ceramic work, which we can talk about if you'd like a little yeah. later. Um, yeah. That came out of uh, my experience during COVID. Um, I make drawings. So I make whatever work is um, sort of tickling my interest in the moment. Yeah. And all the work is in dialogue. I think one reason I was excited to talk to you and your work really appeals to me is because I don't feel you confi- being confined mm-hmm. by these notions. And I find um, as an art educator in my career, people always want to know, like, okay, what are you? What yeah. do you do? And as an art educator, it's challenging for a lot of us mm-hmm. because because we're working with so many students and so many media, it mm-hmm. is often hard in our own practice to focus on one particular thing. And I know I struggled to identify as a painter for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in grad school, I was working with a guy who used to mix kitty litter in with his oil paints. That's a and great idea. He would make these giant um, sculptural paintings that had to do, he was uh, enamored with the landfill that was mm-hmm. nearby. And so he was seeing these as levels of history mm-hmm. and waste. And the minute I saw him mixing kitty litter into paint, I was like, oh. It's free reign. It's, Anything can be painting. Exactly. And so yeah. uh, that was very liberatory for me. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad to know that you got out of that way earlier than I did. So mm-hmm. um, so part of this conversation, for those of you listening, I ask my artists to provide some images that we can talk about. And this is a podcast video series. So if you want to actually see our conversation, um, we have it on video and it's available on my website, drcamcreates.com. Um, but 
we also are going to have these in studio. So um, what we need to do for the listeners is to just take a second to describe mm-hmm. what we're looking at. So on the screen right now, there's a pedestal, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll just ha- have a hand at this. And if you sure, want to interject, you, you do you it. Know, yeah. You tell I'd me like what, to hear how, what, yeah, how you so, describe so it. So there's a pedestal that has four um, ceramic forms on it, and they're abstract. They have different heights, mostly white cream glazes, very elegant. And then behind that, there's a work that uh, is hanging on the wall, maybe, I don't know, two feet above that pedestal. And um, if you had to describe the image, on the one hand, it looks like a giant heart, but yet there's it's collage with multiple images within that space. But it's mostly oranges, greens, blue greens. Um, yeah, that's just a very general way. Now, what am I missing there? If you were to describe this to a listener, mm. the image you just described is um, an oil painting. Yes, that's framed, and it's based off of a collage. So, um, can I back up and give a little context, or do you want to keep describing it? No, we can just, I just want to have yeah. the viewer have a sense. And I have a next slide where you've mm-hmm. got your working process then. So yeah, yeah feel free to yeah. what's elaborate. N- what's not shown in these images is um, this, this, I guess you see some of the source imagery on my computer screen in the image on the left. Um, so after I had my first son, I wanted to continue making work in the studio, of course, but my life had entirely changed. Um, so I had all of these images I had shot in my studio and in the world around me. Um, I had not yet made collages. So in my mind, I was shooting them as source imagery to make paintings from. And I started just printing them on very the various papers that I draw on. So Fabriano, um, Arches, Stonehenge, Reeves BFK, some printmaking and drawing papers, and printing the photographic imagery on a photo printer, just whatever I had in my studio at the time, and collaging with them, thinking, not really thinking of it as art. I just needed a way to be creative, I guess, while in the I think I started within six weeks after my first son was born with this collage process. So you're a mom trying to find time to make art. And exactly. Painting felt too labor intensive. Exactly. Perhaps, and you're Clean like, up. I'm washing brushes. I wasn't going to be doing any of that. So yeah. especially not with oils because there was a chemical element there that I wasn't comfortable with at that time because I was nursing my son. Um, and I was also had just been pregnant. So I w- had taken a break from oil painting, yeah. which I have lots of thoughts and have done lots of research. So we can get back to that if you want. Yeah. But um, I now paint again um, without uh, airborne toxins. So we can talk about that yeah, later. That's great. So that's been a journey. Um, so I wanted this. Um, so you're th- making these collages. You're just like, saying, what can I do on really good paper? Yeah. With images and was there anything motivating the types of images like what what selection process what what image made it to the good paper that's a good question um they were images from traveling and so my work centers around the landscape and people's interaction with my own interaction with the land and landscape um so that's the kind of basic gist of my work and then i think of it as um exploring artifact and at the time when I started making these souvenir. So we leave artifacts um, behind when we go through our human lives in the landscape, um, the best of which is found and put in museums, sometimes controversially so. It's taken from its original source and put in another country. Um, And the worst of which ends up in like a landfill maybe or polluting the earth. So somewhere in there, 
um, all that entire span is the human um, interaction with what we leave behind. And then there's also what we take from the landscape, basically souvenirs. When we're walking around in the earth, we may, uh, or in the landscape, we may pick up a stone or a feather or, um, I mean, on my runs, I'm now picking up interesting looking chunks of asphalt and uh, weather-worn styrofoam as well. So I'm kind of conflating the two now, um, what we leave behind and then what I retrieve. And all of that makes its way into the work. So what you see in this image is a lot of um, tumbled sea glass from a particular um, beach in Iceland that I later learned on my third visit to Iceland was um, the city dump for a while. But oh. I wondered why there was so much beautiful stuff yeah. washing back up on shore. I think people would just take their like household things and kind of dump them on the beach. It wasn't like a waste a waste site. Yes. Um, so I would find the soles of shoes and uh, lots of crockery and ceramic stuff and concrete chunks and sea glass. And I think many in cities have that are on water have something like this. I know there's a beach yes. like this in Toronto. Um, so there's and, a, and the, in London, there's a there's beach a whole like this. Um, genre of artists. Uh, Aurora exactly. Robeson is one of my favorite, uh, but, um, who consider themselves intercepting the yeah. waste stream. Exactly. And so they're picking up these objects. So yeah. you're actually bringing the objects into your studio. Mm -hmm. Are you also photographing them on yes. site and leaving them alone? Sometimes. Or, uh, yeah. So I, any of it. So I, t I do, I mean, I, I'm ex an explorer, so I've, I walk and run. That's an important part of my studio practice. I have all of these sort of extensions of my practice, um, which make, because I'm a full human, as all, are we all, um, I don't limit my studio mind to my studio setting. So um, my own classroom when I'm teaching for example, this project, the collages came out of a demo I was doing, having my students work with a digital image and then hand manipulating it. So I was doing cut paper and making collages yeah. for a demo. I became enamored of the process and it was then there for me when I was in this point in my life where I felt like I couldn't oil paint. Yes. And I had all this paper and I had a printer. And so I had tools around me that would enable me to work cleanly, quickly, pick up and put down the work. Yeah. And now 75 or 80 collages in, three, four series in, um, it's still a part of my practice. But I think when we have these moments in life where we have a pivot or a necessary juncture, um, being responsive to that in our work is unsettling and rewarding at once. And only in hindsight do we see the important role that that um, pivot point played for us. That's great. I love the idea of thinking about how to pivot and apply our yearning for making art, for observing, for exploring, mm -hmm. and doing it in just really small snippets mm -hmm. when you're able, yeah. right? You don't have, sometimes we get trapped into thinking, well, if I can't do the big thing, I just, mm -hmm. I guess I can't be making art. Right. And you're like, no, you can catch it 20 minutes here. The kid's napping. All right, yeah. here we go. Let's exactly. uh, make a little collage and put it on paper. And or even I consider my phone and this sketchbook that I have with me as like extensions of my studio. So I'm always taking, I have a whole stream of art notes in the notes app on my phone. Um, I have this book with me often that it has 
grocery lists and it has very profound art ideas all right <laughs> right next to each other which is the, the very essence of my of our lives right well that could be an interesting series right there no juxtapositions yeah, yeah. great thoughts at the grocery store yeah, yeah something like that well so uh, so now i'm going to switch to an image that um that you have provided it's a I guess we'll call it a painting, mm-hmm. uh, even though it looks it is like a painting. it is a painting. Okay, so it looks like so much more than a painting because it also seems sculptural to some aspect. Um, but yeah, paintings we... can be sculptural. Yeah, yeah. So sure. how do we describe? How would so we've got a painting? What size? What scale are we looking at here? This one is forty-eight inches tall by thirty-six inches wide, which is four by three feet. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a vertical. Its um, dominant color is sort of a tur- turquoise, and then it has these organic. Um, shapes that are floating within that turquoise field. Um, and sometimes they uh, illuminate colors off of one another. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I almost see these as um, stones that could mm-hmm. be moved, even though if you took a stone and flattened it, that might be the organic shape that we're looking at. So exactly. if you're a listener trying to get a mm-hmm. capture, and yet there's also holes in the canvas. Mm-hmm. So you can see the wall behind. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's one in the upper area that, it reminds me of uh, you've got this silver paint around it with this, um, I don't know, orange mm-hmm. illuminate. It reminds me of being a child playing um, Operation, you know, oh, where yeah. I have to reach in and grab something out. It it's has a that. visual version of Operation. Yeah. And then you've got this bar that kind of cuts through this the other opening that almost has a shelf. Mm-hmm. And then you've, you talk about these artifacts you're picking up, like stones mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so I see some of these sitting on there. So exactly. what more can you add to this for someone listening to... Sure. I think it's helpful to see it with, with all my work, it, it exists in dialogue with my other work. So when we take one piece out and just look at it in an isolated way, um, for me, it's helpful helpful to know the context. So this painting started off very differently. I think we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it initially was a very frustrated response to um, people's initial pandemic response where I wanted everyone to stay home <laughs> and <laughs> and be safe you yeah, know yeah. um it was it was came out of a place of fear um and worrying about m- my family and my students and my loved ones um in the context of the pandemic and so you'll see the words stay home kind of written into these um stone forms yeah so for the listener for just pause so i've uh, have a s- s- uh, slide now where we have the early painting and mm-hmm. so the early painting you see traces of it in the final painting but yet there's areas that are obliterated like i had to look for a while when I was putting these slides together and say, are these two different works or is this the early work? Because you drastically changed it. So mm-hmm. how do you get, I mean, so keep going, like talk yeah. about how this started, but then how do you, right? Like somebody might look at that and say, okay, that's a painting. I like it. I don't like it. Maybe I won't show it. But yet you've just obliterated it and turned it into something completely different. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of people, I'm thinking about the teens that might be listening. Right. Right? A lot of people don't just radically shift and paint over something and incorporate things from the underneath. Right. So tell us, why did you do that? Yeah. Why? It's, how is that part of your it's, process? It's much easier if you don't like the initial piece. <laughs> it becomes not precious. It really helps to, yeah. to wait. So if you wait, I don't know, a year or even a few months between when you make something, yeah. it really loses its preciousness and can become just a fertile playground for exploration. Um, and because you're no longer personally invested in it, at least that's what I found for myself. So backing up a little bit, um, 
in both of these, we see what look like um, what I think of as patio pavers, which um, before I had kids and before the pandemic, my world was really large. Like I would travel a lot, my work having to do with the land and landscape, and I would go on residencies and my work looked very outward. Think of the landscape as a vista. When I was grounded by early motherhood and then the pandemic with two young children at home, my world, the aperture on my own view of my experience in the landscape became very, very um, closed, relatively speaking. And so I used my own front walkway as a structural device. So it is concrete and has slate pavers embedded into the concrete as a structural device to speak to that um, closed aperture. So I saw I was walking across this threshold every day. It was covered in bubbles and water balloon fragments and dirt from gardening and our own footsteps. And it changed with the seasons and some of the pavers are coming out of the concrete. And so I was relearning how to oil paint um, taking out the solvent. So I had 20 years of oil painting in one way. Yes. And um, that's a long time. It's a long time to, to learn how to do something and then have to relearn it in a different way. So I I and, took a workshop. And you're taking the solvents out because Except, you're a new mom. Yeah. Well, I also have my own health journey that I'm on. Sure. So I have autoimmune condition that's totally independent of being a mom. So for many reasons, I think it's good for me and other oil painters to jettison if possible the um, airborne toxins, which is the right, yeah. solvents, dryers, yeah. varnishes. So you're on this mission to do this. Indeed. And-, and I've done it in the classroom, but I was kind of relearning, like, how do I oil paint without this stuff? It would be like, how do I acrylic paint without the water? You know, that might be a good metaphor. Like, yeah. so, so I need, what's my new water was oh. my, my journey. So I took a workshop. There was an artist in LA, Kimberly Brooks, who was Um, help facilitate that because she does work in this area. I wrote a grant at EMU to to delve deeply into it. So I I was I needed to worry less about what I was painting. So these patio pavers became the thing to focus on. Additionally, another armature for my work is um, styrofoam packing forms, which I use in many ways. But basically, I, I, I spoke to styrofoam before, but it is not going to leave us. It is going to stick around in the atmosphere yeah. or in the in the uh, earth. So I have collected a bunch of it, and I find the forms fascinating. So I work with them in different ways. Mm. They're usually white. And when I put an object into the recessed area of a styrofoam packing form, the object, then it's like a little curio object. So I think of them like um, wonder cabinets or curio cases yeah. um, that I continually rearrange. So here in this painting, the finished version of it, which is called Pandemic Patina, you see the intersection of the recesses of the styrofoam packing forms with objects kind of um, maybe ambiguous objects, which is fine with me, featured. And then these paver forms as well, also remnants from the previous painting. I love that because when I've looked at these, I I often wonder, how do you decide to paint them the way you do, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the, I look at that upper left region and you've got this form sitting there, maybe it's a stone at some Mm -hmm. point, but then you've got this glow around it. And, you know, as an, in terms of thinking about children and teens, right? Like, how do you decide, like, well, where does the glow start? Where Mm -hmm. does it end? And, Mm -hmm. And so, 
maybe that's an arbitrary decision, but now that I realize like, no, you're probably looking at this styrofoam form mm -hmm. and you're looking at how the light is hitting it. So yeah. um, you're translating skills you probably learned at some point in college of how to render a still life, mm -hmm. for example. And so now you're you're creating your own abstract still lives exactly out of this material that won't degrade mm -hmm. and this material that's been along probably since the beginning of the planet, mm -hmm. right? Stone mm -hmm. and um, juxtaposing those. And then I find that interesting because you've got this artificial and natural, mm -hmm. and yet you're using also kind of realistic yet unrealistic colors together. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of mimicking that play between the natural and the artificial through the use of color. That's exactly right. That's beautiful. And the collages teach me about painting. Um, I have cut paperwork where I've like silver leafed the front of these um, or neon orange construction fences. It's all done out of cut paper from a photographic image. But the front of the paper is silver leafed. The back is painted fluorescent orange and it glows on the white wall yes. when it's installed. And so I took that glow and would sometimes... Um, take fragments of paper that were painted fluorescent orange or objects and when they're in the styrofoam packing forms they have the glow around them too so you can see that in the collages you see that mimicked in this painting so you hit the nail on the head cam like yeah. the, the juxtaposition of the natural object and yeah. the um the human made object well and i love that idea of thinking about you know, we always think about having to travel and see beyond the world. Mm -hmm. And obviously we all want to do that as yeah. people. But I had similar experiences during the pandemic with mm -hmm. my backyard and gardening. I thought, well, if I can't go anywhere, why not make my own house feel like a resort? No kidding. And I just started changing. I, I started radically moving plants mm -hmm. and changing things and putting architectural forms in. I added seven vertical trees, mm -hmm. which then changed the entire, made the landscape around me much more three-dimensional, mm -hmm. which just brought my space to life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I just felt like I don't need to go anywhere. I'm just going out in my backyard. Exactly. Yeah. So to, to see the, right. How do how are you inspired as an art maker? Teens think, well, you have to go and see big things and that helps, but mm -hmm. you just have to pay attention to what's around you and look at the juxtapositions. And, and if you look mm -hmm. every day, I walked every day for a long time. I just walked a mile out in front mm -hmm. of my house around the block. Mm -hmm. And when you walk the same route every day, you think it's boring, but yet it changes every it changes single all the time. day, even in, within hours. Mm -hmm. So you're noticing that on your front walk. Indeed. I think a lot of artists are, one of our roles is as society's observers. Hmm. And, then, and then how do we translate what we observe? And that comes through the filter of our own idiosyncrasies, our own unique viewpoints, and that's why so many, so many of our viewpoints um, need to be expressed, um, because there are so many backgrounds out there. Like we need the backgrounds of people of every race and gender, yeah. identification and um, culture, yeah. uh, and age. You yeah. know, uh, so I don't know. This, these are so the you see translated my own, right? Yeah. But um, that's when I'm talking to my own students who are art ed students, yes, I let them know there's a reason they got into art ed, that they are also artists. Yes. And so to try to tap into um, their own making as well. So there's an acronym that was coined by uh, Rita Irwin and some other famous art educators, and it's ART, but it's Artist 
researcher, mm-hmm. teacher. Exactly. And That's really, what we are. Yeah. yeah. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, like that totally yeah. embraced the three identities I, like I felt like I possessed mm-hmm. because uh, I'm interested in the research aspect. But research can be the art making. Mm-hmm. It's not just reading scholarly work and documenting what your students do. It's like really using materials. And um, I know in my own dissertation work, I made a, I, I was capturing data. And at one point, the data became overwhelming. And so I had to make quilts mm-hmm. because I had. And Perfect. so I layered the data and it just anyway. Yeah, it was great. Mm-hmm. But so now in the um, for listeners, I've put an image on the screen now where uh you may not know this, but Amy is like the envy of many people on EMU's campus mm-hmm. because she has a studio that is quite amazing. And I think what's amazing about your studio, Amy, is you've made the commitment to dedicate like a portion of your house, like what other people would consider living space. Right. Other people might turn this into just an elegant living room. It was an office for a lawyer originally, okay. like oh, wow. in a in a previous life. OK. The walls were red. Yeah, so so you've got this space. It has vaulted ceilings, mm-hmm. and it ha- the flooring looks like brick. But is it a um, linoleum? It's end grain wood tile, which was used in ah. car factories. Uh, it's great for dampening sound, insulating. Because what's underneath of that yeah. is the concrete slab for the, in an even more previous life, the garage. It was a two car garage before it was converted by a previous owner. Oh my gosh, that's why. So, so when so we it found the space, house, yeah, yeah, it was a great big cavernous room. Okay. I mean, like 450 square foot room. And so tell us, you know, because where people work can be inspiring. Yeah, so exactly. what, what makes this space workable for you? And what in this space draws you in? Like, how do you begin your routines? You know, do you, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, what, yeah. are we, what are we looking at here? You are looking at a lot of what I do. So on this day that these photos were taken, I had a meeting, um, a studio visit with a curator at the University of Michigan Institute for the Humanities, Amanda Krugliak, for a show that I participated in last summer, a two-person show. Um, so I had my studio set up as um, it was all tidied up for her. I was going to say, so it doesn't always look this <laughs> it way. It does not it's always so look perfect. this way. Yeah. Um, it does not always have all the work up like on display yeah. the way it was here for her. And I thought maybe for this audience it would be nice to see, you know, a a, lo- a large array of the work um, yeah. up in different states of finish. So there's like an unfinished painting hiding behind the easel on the left. You see ceramic work, um, paintings from various series, collages that are framed and unframed. Um, there's ceramic tiles. So there's a lot of work that I do. And I think, as with many of the artists that I admire, which that's another part of the art making process we can talk about in a little bit. Um, the work all feeds into each other, even if they are from disparate, um, seemingly disparate media or series. And yeah. so you see, and there's my family. <laughs> so um, I like that you included this because, yeah. right, it is your home. And so exactly. it's not like you lock your door and you're in there working. Now, 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 when you are working, are the children permitted to just come and go as they please? Or do you sort of set there have to Work be hours. rules. There have to be rules in my studio because there are materials that can harm them. If yeah. and they can also, I mean, if they're being uh, too creative, they can <laughs> al- they can alter my work, which they know not to do. But um, yeah. I've had them in there working before. Like we've done drawings together, and I have worked with Elliot. He's the older one to do paintings. Um, but they really 
they need to respect it as a as a workspace. Yeah. So I know that I need to know that I don't have to lock away the exacto knives, for example, because I need to just be able to grab them whenever I'm working. Yeah. Um, so there's oil paint there, which I wear an apron and gloves when I'm painting, but I don't want them just like picking up a, a wet palette knife, you know. Sure. So I try to keep my space fairly clean, but I also need them to know it's a space that needs to be respected for work. Um, this is precisely why when teachers are planning lessons for elementary and I, I'm adamant, like, do not have your students mm-hmm. finger paint. That seems like a fun thing, but you're teaching them practices. Mm. And so if you constantly are letting them just do whatever they want with their hands, they're mm-hmm. going to think any art material can be used that way with their hands. And you have mm-hmm. to really be explicit in saying, no, this is why we're using the tools mm-hmm. when we apply paint and so forth. Um, yeah. I personally don't have a problem with finger painting, but I think it really needs to be contextualized. These yeah. paints are made for kids. Yep. These paints are made for grownups. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we do with beverages. I don't let my kids drink wine yes. or coffee. Um they can have some water, juice, milk. They can have things that are appropriate for kids. And they yes. know there's grown-up drinks and there's kid drinks yes. um, that everyone can enjoy. And same with art supplies. So I think it's all about how we contextualize the materials. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So there's some boundaries. And then Absolutely. also, too, you have to be able time. to concentrate. Yeah. They they um, So mostly I work while they're in school, which was a challenge during the pandemic. So yeah. we had nannies come into our house to help us um, distract, entertain, be with the children so we could get our work done. My husband and I were both working from home, yeah. which often meant schoolwork, which is me teaching or doing course prep or grading. But it also, because my studio became my classroom for a, a, over a year. Um, but it also meant uh, I had I had to get my artwork done because I had things going on. I need to make work also to be just yeah. like a whole insane person, just like I need to exercise regularly. When I like that model that you used to, a lot of art educators get into the profession because they love making art. Mm-hmm. And then they get into the routine of teaching, and which is really tiresome. It is. And then they feel like they don't have the time or the space. And what happens over time is they stop making art. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's so vital to our own enthusiasm for wanting to teach the subject that mm-hmm. we keep that fresh. And it also helps us develop our skills in order to help our students in what they're doing. Um, But, you know, to take time on a Saturday, for example, and get a nanny or hire a sitter Mm -hmm. and have them come and watch your children while you make art. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of art teachers think that they could do that, right? That it's okay. Mm -hmm. It might feel selfish to them, but to say, look, if you're going to be a practicing artist, do what it takes in order Mm -hmm. to give yourself the time and the space. So Yeah. And lots of people deal with that in different ways. Some people become very early risers or night owls. Yeah. Some people do all their work while their kids are in school. So that means they need school-age children. They have a hard time when the kids are very little. So that's where the nanny or the babysitter might come in. An art teacher is working all day. Exactly. Or a... um, spouse or partner or a grandparent or yeah. a, a, a neighbor who's very attentive. Yeah. So we need, in this country, we do, don't do a great job of supporting parents. We don't do a great job of supporting moms, um, especially not moms of very 
new kids, yeah. like young kids. And same with our teachers. I feel like that's um, something that we could do a better job in this country, yeah. supporting our teachers. Amen. So giving, <laughs> giving them more time. What if they had an afternoon every week dedicated to their own research, which for an artist means you're making your own work. Yes. Um, one afternoon. So I know some art teachers will teach at multiple schools or they don't have the um, schedule that goes from like 7.30 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon every single day. Um, I I feel mixed about that because I want all of our children to be exposed to as much art as possible, but I also really want them not to be learning from people who are very burnt out and not in touch with their own creativity. Yeah. So it has to be a balance. Well, when I taught high school, uh, it was great because I had a corner of the room that I mm -hmm. just turned into a painting space. And when my students were really involved in their own work, I could stand back there and paint. And mm -hmm. sometimes I painted all day and just checked in with students as they came in and out. And yep. they could see I was modeling, working. Yeah. Uh, they saw me working. They immediately got to work. I, I still could ask answer questions, yeah. but um, I was able to engage my own practice by making a space for it. But it helped because I was working with older students as well. That's what my art teacher did in high school. I remember her sitting at her desk working on her own work hmm. while we engaged in our longer term projects, yeah. you know, like the, the ones that take weeks. So this image I have on the screen now, I don't it feels really intimate to me. Mm. Like this is your painting. What do you call this? It's my painting table. Yeah. And did every you... painter has some kind of some version of this. I mean, it, for one person, it may be a paper plate scattered all over the floor with paint on them, but it's right. some version of this. And did you make this? My like... husband made it for Mother's Day a few oh, years wonderful. ago. I know. I'm lucky. He's a keeper. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, once again, I like this because people think you, you have to go buy that equipment. Mm -hmm. No, you could get a cabinet at a um, mm -hmm. thrift store sure. or at a curb somebody's That's what ditching. I started off with. The thing before this was something that I basically dumpster dove in the grad studios. Uh, yeah. At, it, it had So you can put wheels on just about any piece of furniture. Yeah. So you go to the hardware store and buy casters. Then you can cart it around. Yeah. Um, if you go to a university's property disposition, they're often getting rid of old carts. I have three or four old carts in my studio that I use as like little mini painting tables. I've got one for watercolor, one for gouache. Um, this is my largest one that we custom... I designed it and Mark built it out for me. Um, I've had that piece of tempered glass since grad school, hmm. which I found. I mean, you can find a lot of stuff if you're resourceful or you. And that tempered glass allows you to clean the palette off. Mm -hmm. That's an oil painter's palette. I yeah. have my students use glass as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then I love the juxtaposition of the images you sent me because mm -hmm. here's your, you know, you can tell this is a well-worn um, painting space that mm -hmm. you use. And then. You have this image, um, right? You've transformed, uh, like, is this a hall closet mm -hmm. or a bedroom closet? That's a hall closet. So we have two coat closets right next to each other in our central hallway of our home. And I got rid of a lot of coats. And um, <laughs> I had too many coats. So uh, we needed a space for our children to work where they we needed them to have a studio yeah. so that they could just sit down. And right now it's totally trashed. But, you know, I can shut those doors. Yes. And it's not a thing. Um so they needed a place where they didn't have to clean up or put things away every time, just like I don't have to do that in my own studio. Um, I well, can leave it. Well, I think any creative person needs to have some space in exactly. their house where they can let it be what it is. And the kids need that you too. You don't have to be neat. You can yeah. leave it there. You know, uh, my dining room table is that mess right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I love the fact that you've made a space. And so what you're telling your children 
is that you value the arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they see you doing it, but you could, if you didn't make a space for them, it could be, oh, that's mommy's space. Mm-hmm. And you're not inviting them to be art makers. And so right. here you're saying, well, it is important and here's your own space. Yeah, I thought it'd be good for the art ed folks to see a way to do it with very simple means at home. Um, so it doesn't have to be a closet. It could be an Ikea cart that just has those three levels where yes. you have, and then that cart gets wheeled around the house to a flat surfaces. Um, so we, for, it was important for us to have it near the heart of the home. Yeah. So the kids weren't off in some room somewhere. Yeah. Um, we wanted to be able to keep an eye on them. They like being close to us. We wanted something that could be kept organized and we wanted it to be near water for when they work with paint. So it's right across the hall from a bathroom. I was astounded when I was teaching fifth grade. Uh, I would teach them how to clean up and take care of watercolor. Mm-hmm. And I also um, encourage their families to get, you can buy them at big lots, you know, the, the vinyl tablecloths, mm-hmm. you know, that have the felt backing. Yeah. Those are great because they're, they're indestructible mm-hmm. and you can just put it over the table, paint yeah. and then put it away. And so, um, but I was astounded when I asked my class, how many of you uh, paint at home? Mm-hmm. And very few. And I asked, well, why, why don't you it's paint messy. if you love yeah. it? Their parents won't let them because mm-hmm. it's too messy. And well, so, I, so I said, well, look, yeah. I'm going to teach you how to take care of the paints, yeah. how to clean up so that you can then negotiate this again with your parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. let me try this again and prove to them. I said, prove to them you can take care mm-hmm. of the space and not spill your water. And, not, and uh, some of them, you know, it worked. So yeah. I I think that that's about like the kids understanding what it means, like their own role in the household as well as someone who isn't uh, just there to use the house, but is a caretaker of the home as well. Oh, I love that. Um, Yeah. I I have my own limits with what I want my kids to have in our home. Like certain slimes are not invited. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So this last series of artworks kind of kind of pulls our conversation together, I think. And so. Um, we're looking at a work that I find this interesting because we're actually looking at this long white table and on that table, there are what, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, seven artifacts. So these look like things that you've manipulated or made yourself, not just things you've picked up as we talked about. Some of them are found objects. Okay. So there's a combination. Mm -hmm. And then behind that, there's a series of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Um, of these collages that you've Mm -hmm. been making. And I find this setup interesting because if you go to, you don't know, an artist who's been around a while and they might display, um, if they're doing a retrospective, Mm -hmm. they might display their work in this way. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like you're saying, no, I'm creating this retrospective and Mm -hmm. I'm presenting it this way as the artist. Like, is this your convention or did the gallery happen to set it up this way? I designed it. Yeah. I have a very... um sort of primitive drawing in my sketchbook for that table design, which I don't know if I can put my hand on the drawing right now. Yeah. Um, But I showed it to an EMU grad, Rob Todd, who does fabrication for lots of local businesses. He makes like signage for businesses and all kinds of things. So I told him what I wanted and he built me a, a table that collapses. It is heavy and it needs it's it's kind of cumbersome yeah but um so I'm pretty thoughtful about where and when and how I show it but it's been shown in Flint now and it's been shown at the EMU gallery um but you want it stable because you don't want exactly. viewers in a gallery to yeah bump it and yeah. crash it yeah but display I'm I very much care about design yeah. with a capital D and display 
and I, I mentioned artifacts earlier. Um, and so if we are thinking of um, what we contribute to the world and what we take away from the world as being a kind of continuum, and if we're displaying certain of these archaeological findings in museums, why can't we give the same kind of care and credence to the work that we make? Yeah. Also, it followed my getting into ceramics. And so I was already thinking quite a lot about objects and the way they exist around us, the way we populate our home with um, objects that are very special to us. Those in, You may have a, a, a bird nest you found right next to a very expensive vase made by an artist next to something you got at Target. <laughs> right. And, and I value all of that, right? Yeah. So I, in turn, take objects that I've found on the ground and put them next to something I spent quite a lot of time making. And they're depicted then in the collages. So one of the, there's a chunk of concrete in the center of pandemic patina. Yeah. So it has a silver leafed um, surfaces in that green painting. Um, and that chunk of concrete is depicted in a number of the collages so there's a lot of um, recursive echoing conversations among all of the work. Mm. And then you might see, you know, you go over to the wall and see the painting and then that chunk of concrete is physically there in the space. So you see the collages in this image underway. Yeah. It's just a table with like multiple. And do you work on many at one time? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the best way for me to work on them is to basically set up a big um, collage factory, as I think of it. <laughs> so they... And it's funny, they, they're collages of photos, right? They're photo collages. But they, the, all the images, with the exception of a very few of them, I've taken myself just with my iPhone because it's yeah. always with me. So it's my note-taking device as well. Um, but also I paint. Um, you see the there's acrylic gouache paints yes, there. Yes. Um, so I'll paint big sheets of paper and basically make my own color-aid paper, okay. often on a gradient. And then I cut shapes out of the those papers so those colorful shapes make their way into the work as well oh, nice. so there's painting in the yeah, collages nice I saw you one time taking a photograph outside <laughs> of the um, arts complex yeah. um, where the the awning sticks out and it's copper mm -hmm. and the copper has like run onto the ground patina the yeah. patina mm -hmm. yeah so you were taking a photo and I was like oh that's brilliant I love that um, and I like the fact that you're making your own table. You're really thinking, right? As artists, you think about how you're presenting your work, mm -hmm. um, which in art making, right? We have four standards we try to have students um, think about when we're mm -hmm. teaching uh, the national visual arts standards. And so connecting to other artists, connecting to the world, uh, responding, how do we respond to artworks, creating, and then presenting. And a lot of times the presenting gets laid off because we're focused on creating mm -hmm. and and art teachers end up like using duct tape and sticking things to walls mm -hmm. and it's like whoa 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 wait how well, can we so it's budgetary like yeah yeah uh, yeah that's resources definitely, that's definitely but I love the fact that you're connecting I hear you talking about how you're connecting the different artists and how your um your relationship to society mm -hmm. and to the culture and you've often talked about historical context mm -hmm. and how that relates to your work so um you you know it's important I think for those of my students who are training to be art teachers to really understand through this conversation how you're doing all of those mm -hmm. things and then how to pull out those ideas for their own students. And then this is just that work um, again. Now, I want to end the last <laughs> piece here and then we'll um, 
start to wrap things up a bit, but what am I, we're looking at, you, right? We've seen those little mini libraries around yeah. towns where you can go and walk and pick out a book and maybe put a book, but some communities are making little um, boxes like that for mm -hmm. art galleries. That's what this became. Yeah. yeah. So how did this happen and yeah. what, what are you thinking about here? This, this happened in a very um, serendipitous way. I, in December, had to have a carcinoma removed from my right index finger, and I'm right-handed. So I was down my dominant hand ah. and couldn't operate, basically. Yeah. So I decided to take adversity and turn it into an opportunity, as I like to do. I, I don't like feeling victimized. I'd rather feel like I have agency. So I decided to do some left-handed drawing. <laughs> so I, I have some larger ones than this too, but also at the same time, we had a birthday party for my younger son and um, Joe Levickus came over and he runs Creole Micro Gallery in Ann Arbor out of his front yard. Okay. So he has this beautiful micro gallery, like a little free library, yes. but it's a gallery with lights um, that matches his house. It's really professionally done. It's beautiful. Um, and we were talking and he said, oh, my January artist dropped out. And I thought, hmm, I think a way to get through this trial would be to have a little project to work on. Yeah. And so I basically condensed my gallery into a table or my studio into a tabletop. Yes. And I took some of my early ceramic work and some found objects and um, and some little left-handed drawings I made specifically for this display and came up with a show entitled Offhand. Um, or offhand. So I was drawing with my offhand, yes, right? Yes. I'm often like even in drawing classes, I'll tell students now we're going to switch to your your non-dominant hand. Um, but I like it. I mean, the title summarizes the entire thing. It was almost an offhanded exhibition, you know, like right. it came about very organically. But it was great to, that he afforded me the ability to um, experiment. Yes. I really value that. And people on Instagram apparently adore miniatures because um, oh. I have never gotten so many likes as I did for this tiny gallery display. Oh, it's yeah. a big thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And during the pandemic, people were doing little mini yeah. galleries and they sell those little tiny people. Yeah. And so like I've seen um, art teachers take images of student work and then they'll install it like along the mm -hmm. um, hallway to the cafeteria. And like yeah. you have this little, any, any tiny little space where you can yeah. have this little cluster and it's a brilliant way to mm -hmm. have an exhibition, yeah. but there, it's, um, it's not high stakes, right? right. Like you can't get it wrong. It's going to be adorable because it's yeah. little. Um, but I like that connection to being off, offhand. That's a, yeah. One of the first photos I posted on Instagram was a, a direct, like a direct on image of the gallery. Right. Yeah. And people kept commenting that until they scrolled through the photos and saw a picture of Joe's hands taking a photo of the space, yeah. they thought it was a full-scale gallery. That's how and convincing so that, it is. And so that quick like jump from um, being convinced something is one thing and then switching into it being suddenly miniature, I think just delighted people. That's great. Yeah. I had a professor once who had us draw with our non-dominant hand and then we had to analyze and then they use that as a prompt to connect us back to our childhood selves. Mm -hmm. That's great. Like that might be how you drew yeah. as a five-year-old. Yeah. And uh, I just thought that was really brilliant because we, t we mm -hmm. do, we do. I like the fact that you're trying to get away from things being precious mm -hmm. and, and lasting forever and um, being experimental and just switching up how you use your hands is a great way yeah. to do that. It was interesting though, how much of my art training 
still came through in the work. It's like it didn't my brain was still there, you know, my my own sensibilities were still there. Yeah. It's just that I felt clumsier. So um, it was interesting grappling with the mental ability to do something and then the physical um, inability as I saw it. And I think it turns into an asset. So often we see disability as just that, a disability, when really um, if uh, viewed properly, uh, th- we all have assets. Yeah. I mean, the disability can turn into something that is like very helpful to others or helpful to the self. Well, and if you look at it right, it can feed your create ability. No right? kidding. Like, yeah. you can't do this, so what can you do? Right. And it poses the what if. Right. Wow. This has been uh, really good. And so, um, you know, I'm going to want to wrap things up here mm-hmm. for just a minute. And while I'm saying just a couple things to honor the series, you know, I want you to think about what advice you might give to um, teens in particular, mm-hmm. but people who are wanting to live an artistic life, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're going to be full-blown artists or whether it's going to be a hobby, like what advice could you give them? So think about that for a minute and okay. I'll come back to that. But I just want to take a moment to say that, um, you know, this series has been made possible um, by an EMU College of Arts and Sciences Dean's Faculty Professional Development Award. Um, this award was a generous gift from Game Above, a group of dedicated Eastern Michigan University alumni with various academic and professional backgrounds. Um, big kudos and thanks to Max at Be Now Media for producing this work, and uh, he's been great. And uh, I'm grateful to Grove Studios for giving us a space in Ypsilanti, mm-hmm. providing a professional venue in where we can record such uh, work. And then, obviously, thanks to my artists, my friends, my colleagues um, for taking time out of a busy semester to just sit down and talk about their practice and think about how um, what advice they might give to others. So, Amy, with that, um, what what tips would you give if you could give like five? or so, or mm-hmm. maybe six. I think you have Yeah, I, I thought of another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think of these as like tangible, actionable um, tips for being a productive or effective artist. Um, so one thing, these are all things that I do. So they help me and I, they may be able to help other people. I have multiple projects going at once. So no matter what my mood when I'm going into the studio, there's always something that's going to call to me. Hmm. Um, so that that may reflect like the um, all the media that I go into. Yeah. Um, for example, something was missing. So after COVID, I got deeply into ceramics at age 42. You can also start things at any time. You can always pick up a new thing. Yeah. Um, second, um, if you're not feeling the studio or you feel blocked, um, I feel like it's helpful for me to do small tasks in the studio, little little chores or clean my space. Hmm. And that's just the pathway in for me. First of all, my space is clean and it feels good to be in there working. Um, and then it's an invitation to just be in there and stay. Um, I find it helpful to have, third, a work uniform to put on when it's time for making. So when I was in grad school, it was a whole paint. I was a very sloppy painter. So I would just have this whole painty outfit I would put on, just some like old jeans. Now it's just an apron. But if it's an apron or a smock, for me, it like switches my brain over into maker maker mode. 
I can totally relate to that as an art teacher, yeah. right? Like the minute I put on that apron, I just am mm-hmm. entering a different, uh, and it also signaled my students, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, we're going to really make something today yeah. <laughs> when they saw me with that apron exactly. on. Exactly. I mean, surgeons wear the lab coat even in their offices when they're meeting yeah. with um, patients. Right. Um, dedicate for, dedicate a space or spaces to making. That's your studio. Uh, it makes the work more accessible and enjoyable when you can go to your space and become immersed. And it doesn't have to be a room. It can be a countertop. It yeah. can be anything. I know loads of artists who've had studios in their kitchens. Just make sure you're not doing something unsafe in a domestic space with people and pets around. Um Keep track of your artist influences, a running list of artists with whom your work is in conversation, both historic and contemporary, I think is really important. It's like a reminder yeah. for yourself if you feel aimless or lost. No, my work is in dialogue with yeah. with this movement or these people out there. Um, and trust your intuition. This is my last thing. Um, whose advice and critiques to listen to, what to work on next, where your work should go, Follow what excites you, not what you think you should be doing. It's a balance to try to remain open and receptive while navigating your own journey with your work. That is great advice. Yeah, anybody listening is going to definitely be able to um, either expand their own process Mm -hmm. based on the tips you've given or see it as an entry point into Mm -hmm. the artistic process. So, uh, Amy, it has been a pleasure uh, having you on Engaging Process. Um, we've been Thank talking you, with, yeah, Amy Saxtetter, uh, artist, painter, explorer, observer. <laughs> um, I, I might even put archaeologist in there. I just think that... I wear that know, hat sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. So, And I want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Um, you know, may you go out into the world and engage your artistic processes for yourself. I'm Dr. Cam McComb, and this has been Engaging Process. <laughs>